Chapter 18 There was no day or night that passed when I didn't listen for sounds from the sky. Both my sense of touch and my sense of hearing were beginning to make up for my lack of sight. I separated the sounds and each became different. And boys and girls, I don't know if you remember us talking about that, but oftentimes people who have lost one of their senses, whether they are deaf and they can't hear, or if they are blind and cannot see, their other senses are very heightened. And so they're almost experts with using their other senses. I grew to know the different cries of the birds that flew by the K, even though I had no idea what any of them were. I made up my own names for them according to the sound of their cries. Only the occasional bleat of the gull gave me a picture of that bird, for I had heard and seen them many times around the seawall in Willemstead. I knew how the breeze sounded when it crossed the sea grape. It fluttered the small leaves. When it went through the palm fronds, the storm hadn't ripped away. It made a flapping noise. I knew the rustle of the lizards. Some were still on the island after the storm. I could only guess they'd somehow climbed high into the palms. Otherwise, how could they have lived with water lapping over the entire quay? I even knew when Stu Cat was approaching me. His soft paws on a dried leaf made only a tiny crackle, but I heard it. One mid-morning in early August, I was on the hill near the camp when I heard the far-off drone of an airplane. It was upwind from me, but the sound was very clear. I reached down to feel Stu Cat. He had heard it too. His body was tense. His head pointed toward the sound. I dropped to my knees by the fire, feeling around the edges until I grasped the end of a stick. I drew it back. Timothy had taught me to lay the fire sticks like a wheel so that the fire burned slowly in the center, but always had a few unburned ends on the outside. I tended the fire a half dozen times a day. I spit on the stick until I heard a sizzle. Then I knew there was enough fire or charring on it to light off the base of dried palm fronds beneath the signal fire. I listened again for the drone. Yes, it was still there, closer now. I ran down the hill straight to the signal fire, felt around the palm fronds, and then pushed the stick over them. I blew on it until I heard the crackle of flames. In a few minutes, the signal fire was roaring, and I ran to South Beach, where I would be able to hear the aircraft without hearing the crackling fire. Standing on South Beach, I listened. The plane was coming closer. I yelled toward the sky, here, down here. I decided to run back to East Beach to stand near the fire in the new arrangement of rocks that I'd spelled out, help. Thinking any moment the plane would dive and I would hear the roar of its engines across the quay at low altitude, I stood with Stucat a few feet from the sloshing surf. I waited and waited, but there was no thundering sound from the sky. I could hear nothing but the crackling of the fire, the washing sound of the surf. I ran back to South Beach where I stood very still and listened. The plane had gone. Slowly I returned to East Beach and sat down in sea grape shade. I put my head down on my arms and sobbed, feeling no shame for what I was doing. There seemed to be no hope of ever leaving this quay. Yet I knew I could not always live this way. 
One day I would become ill, or another storm would rage against the island. I could never survive here alone. There had been many bad and lonely days and nights, but none were as bad as this. Stewcat came up purring, rubbing along my legs. I held him a long time, wondering why the aircraft had not come down when the pilot saw the smoke. At last I thought perhaps they didn't see the smoke. I knew it was going up into the sky, but was it white smoke that might be lost in the blue-white sky? Or was it dark and oily smoke that would make a smudge against the blueness? There was no way to tell. If only there were some oily boards, the kind that drifted around the waters. But I knew that the wood floating up on the beach consisted mostly of branches or stumps that had been in the water for weeks or months. There was nothing in them to make dark smoke. I began to think of all the things on the island. Green palm fronds might send off dark smoke, but until they were dried, they were too tough to tear off the trees. The vines on North Beach might make dark smoke, but the leaves on them were very small. The sea grape, hmm, the sea grape. I snapped some off, feeling it between my fingers. I snapped some off, feeling it between my fingers. Yes, there was oil in it. I got up and went over to the fire, tossing a piece in. In a moment, I heard it popping the way hot grease pops when it's dropped into water. I knew how to do it now. The smoke would rise from the cay in a fat black column to lead the planes up the devil's mouth. If I heard another aircraft, I'd start the fire and then throw bundles of sea grape into it until I was certain a strong signal was going up from the island. Timothy hadn't thought about black smoke, I was sure. That was it. Feeling better now, I walked back up the hill to gather the few palm fronds that were left for a new fire base. I woke up at dawn on the morning of August 20, 1942, to hear thunder and wondered when the first drops of rain would spatter on the roof of the shelter. I heard Stu Cat down near my feet let off a low growl. I said, it's only thunder, Stu Cat. We need the water. But as I continued to listen, it did not seem to be thunder. It was a heavy sound, hard and sharp, not rolling, more like an explosion or a series of explosions. It felt as if the cave were shaking. I got up from the mat, moving out from under the shelter. The air did not feel like rain. It was dry and there was no heavy heat. There are explosions, Stu, I said, very near us. Maybe destroyers, I thought. I could not hear any aircraft engines. Maybe destroyers fighting it out with enemy submarines. And those heavy, hard, sharp sounds could be the depth charges that my father said were used by the Navy to sink U-boats. This time I didn't bother to take a piece of firewood down to East Beach. I dug into the tin box for the cellophane-wrapped package of big wooden matches. Four were left. I ran down the hill. At the signal fire, I searched around for a rock. Finding one, I knelt down by the fire and struck a match against it. Nothing happened. I felt the head of the match. The sulfur had rubbed off. I struck another. It made a small popping noise and then went out. I had two more matches left. 
and for a moment I didn't know whether to use them or run back up the hill to the campfire. I stopped to listen, feeling sweat trickle down my face. The explosions were still thundering across the sky. Then I heard the drone of an aircraft. I took a deep breath and struck the next to last match. I heard it flare and ran my left hand over the top of it. There was heat. It was burning. I reached deep into the fire pile, holding the match there until it began to burn the tips of my fingers. The fire caught, and in a moment, it was roaring. I ran across the beach to begin pulling sea grape down. I carried the first bundle to the fire and threw it in, and soon I could smell it burning. It began to pop and crackle as the flames got to the natural oils in the branches. By the time I had carried 10 or 15 bundles of sea grape to the fire, tumbling them in, I was sure that a column of black smoke was rising into the sky over the quay. Suddenly, a deafening roar swept overhead. I knew it was an aircraft crossing the quay, not much higher than the palms. I could feel the wind from it. Forgetting for a moment, I yelled, Timothy! They've come. The aircraft seemed to be making a sharp turn. It roared across the quay again, seeming even lower this time because the rush of wind from it was hot. I could smell the exhaust fumes. I yelled, down here, down here, and waved my arms. The plane made another tight circle coming back almost directly over me. Its engine was screaming. I shouted at Stucat, we'll be rescued but I think that he'd gone to hide in the sea grape. This time, however, the aircraft did not circle back. It did not make another low pass over the island. I heard the sound going away, and soon it had vanished completely. Then I realized that the explosions had stopped too. A familiar silence settled over the quay. All the strength went out of my body. It was the first real chance of rescue, and maybe there would not be another. The pilot had flown away, perhaps thinking I was just another native fisherman waving at an aircraft. I knew that the color of my skin was very dark now. Worse, I knew that the smoke might have blotted out the lines of rocks that spelled help. Feeling very ill, I climbed the slope again, throwing myself down on the mat in the hut. I didn't cry. There was no use in doing that. I wanted to die. After a while, I looked over toward Timothy's grave. I said, why didn't you take us with you? Chapter 19. It was about noon when I heard the bell. It sounded like bells I'd heard in St. Anna's Bay Small boats and tugs used them to tell the engineer to go slow or fast or put the engines in reverse. For a moment, I thought I was dreaming, and then I heard the bell again, and with it the slow chugging of an engine and voices. They were coming from East Beach. I ran down there. A small boat had come into the devil's mouth and was approaching our quay. I yelled, I'm here, I'm here. There was a shout from across the water, a man's voice. We see you. I stood there on East Beach, stew cat by my feet, looking in the direction of the sounds I heard 
the bell again, and then the engine went into reverse. Someone yelled, Drop, Scotty, the water's shallow. The voice was American. I was certain. The engine was now idling and someone was coming toward me. I could hear him padding across the sand. I said, hello. There was no answer. I suppose he was just staring at me. And then he yelled, my lord, it's a naked boy and a cat. The person on the boat yelled, anyone else? I called out, no, it's just us. I began to move toward the man on the beach. He gasped, are you blind? I said, yes, sir. In a funny voice, he asked, are you all right? I'm fine now, you're here, I said. He said, here boy, I'll help you. I said, if you'll carry Stu Cat, can you just lead me to the boat? After I'd climbed aboard, I remembered Timothy's knife stuck in the palm tree. It was the only thing that I wanted off the quay. The sailor who had carried Stu Cat went up the hill to get it while the other sailor asked me questions. When the first sailor came back from the hill, he said, you won't believe what's up there. I guess he was talking about our hut and the rain catchment. He should have seen the one Timothy built. I don't remember everything that happened in the next few hours, but very soon I was helped up the gangway of a destroyer. On deck, I was asked so many questions all at once that one man barked, stop badgering him, give him food and medical care and get him a bunk to sleep. A voice answered meekly, yes, sir, captain. Down in sick bay, the captain asked, what's your name, son? Philip Enright, my father lives in Willemstead. He works for Royal Dutch Shell, I answered. The captain told someone to get a priority radio message off to the naval commander at Willemstead and then asked, how did you get to this little island? Timothy and I drifted on it after the Hato was sunk. Where's Timothy, he asked. I told the captain about Timothy and what had happened to us. I'm not sure the captain believed any of it because he said quietly, son, get some sleep. The Hato was sunk way back in April. I said, yes, sir, that's right. And then a doctor came in to check me over. It's almost like they can't believe he would have been on this island all that time and survived. That night after the ship had been in communication with Willemstead, the captain visited me again to tell me that his destroyer had been hunting a German submarine when the plane had spotted my black smoke and radioed back. There was still disbelief in his voice when he said that he checked all the charts and publications on the bridge. RK was so small that the charts wouldn't even dignify it with a name. But Timothy had been right. It was tucked back up in the devil's mouth. The next morning, I was rushed to a hospital, although I really didn't think it was necessary. I was strong and healthy. <coughs> the doctor on the destroyer had said so. My mother and father flew over from Willemstead in a special plane. It was minutes before they could say anything. They had just held me, and I knew my mother was crying. She kept saying, Philip, I'm sorry, I'm so, so sorry. The Navy had notified them that I was blind, so that it would not be a shock, and I knew I looked different. 
they brought a barber in to cut my hair, which had grown quite long. We talked for a long time, Stu Cat on my bed, and I tried to tell them all about Timothy and the K, but it was very difficult. They listened, of course, but I had the feeling that neither of them really understood what had happened on our K. Four months later in a hospital in New York, after many x-rays and tests, I had the first of three operations. The piece of timber that had hit me the night the Hato went down had damaged some nerves. But after the third operation, when the bandages came off, I could see again. I would always have to wear glasses, but I could see. That was the important thing. In early April, I returned to Willemstead with my mother, and we took up life where it had been left off the previous April. After I'd been officially reported lost at sea, she'd gone back to Caraco to be with my father. She had changed in many ways. She had no thoughts of leaving the island now. I saw Henrik van Boven occasionally, but it wasn't the same as when we'd played the Dutch or the British. He seemed very young now to me. So I spent a lot of time along St. Anna Bay, sitting near the market, talking to the black people. I liked the sound of their voices. Some of them had known old Timothy from Charlotte O'Malley, and so I felt close to them. I loved to hear their stories. At war's end, we moved away from Scalarloo and Caraco. My father's work was finished. Since then, I've spent many hours looking at charts at the Caribbean. I've found Ron Cador, Rosalind, Quito Cienio, Serenilla Banks. I found Beacon Cay and North Cay in the islands of Provincia and San Andreas. I also found the Devil's Mouth. Someday, I'll charter a schooner out of Panama and explore the Devil's Mouth. I hope to find the lonely, lonely little island where I buried Timothy. Maybe I won't know it by sight, but when I go ashore and close my eyes, I'll know this was our own Kay. I'll walk along East Beach and out to the reef. I'll go up the hill to the row of palm trees and stand by his grave. I'll say, this be outrageous, Kay, eh, Timothy? And that's the end of the story.